Um, Kay Heimovitz is an American writer, researcher, and is the William E. Simon Fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. She's the author of four books, including Growing Up with a Single Parent, Marriage and Cased in America, Separate and Unequal Families in a Postmarital Age, and Manning Up, How the Rise of Women Has Turned Men into Boys. We're very delighted to have Kay here with the help of the Centre for Independent Studies. Um, and uh, it always makes a difference to have those kind of comparative perspectives that are very illuminating. Bettina Arndt is an Australian writer, researcher, started off as our most uh, first and most well-known sex therapist, now clinical psychologist and author. She's the author of books including Private Lives, The Sex Diaries and What Men Want. The way the session's going to work today is that we're going to hear from both of our speakers, then we're going to have some time for discussion and some questions from you, and microphones will be in the auditorium for you to do that. To start us off, let me welcome Kay Heimovitz to this lectern. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've got some, uh, I don't want to say slow going, but heavy going to show you here. I'm going to take you through some of the research that's been done in the United States uh, about family structure. Um, our situation is both very different and very similar to yours here, and Bettina will talk about that. Um, but first, let me give you just a little bit of recent uh, or modern American history. Um, one episode in particular interests me. Um, and so in 1965, a relatively minor researcher with the Uni United States Department of Labor was working away at the sort of things labor types work away at. He was sifting through some unemployment numbers and he was pleased to find, as were all decent Americans, that black men were getting more jobs than they ever had before. Many legal barriers to improving the fortunes of the country's horribly oppressed African-American population were starting to fall away. The Civil Rights Act had been passed a year earlier. The Voting Rights Act assuring full participation for blacks in political life had been passed that very year. These were thrilling steps towards the full citizenship and assimilation of black Americans and a very, very important period in our uh, modern history. But this same researcher, uh, whose name uh, was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, later to become a uh, senator, and I think he even once ran for president, though did not win, uh, obviously. Um, but uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, looking at these unemployment numbers, feeling very pleased to see that black men were moving into the labor department, labor market, then was puzzled to find another set of numbers, and numbers he was totally unprepared for. It seemed that while more black men were joining the labor force, more black women were going on welfare, or what we called at the time um, aid to families with dependent children. Now that was uh, welfare that was just for single mothers. Uh, and um, what, what was confusing, of course, was the question of why, if you had more black men in the labor force, would you see more single mothers? It made sense, in his mind at any rate, to uh, expect that as black, black employment numbers grew for men, that more women would marry. That wasn't happening. Now, Professor Moynihan couldn't figure out what, what the reason for this was, but he went on to write a report warning the White House that whatever their cause, these trends could have a very detrimental effect on black progress. He had grown up in a very poor Irish ghetto himself, Irish ghetto in New York City, and had seen firsthand, in his own home in fact, what happens when fathers disappear from the lives of their children and their communities? It was, the report he wrote, a very sober document, deeply cognizant of our stained history of mistreatment of blacks. But that didn't matter. All hell broke loose. Civil rights leaders, understandably fearful that the report would add to the myth mythology of sexual uh, promiscuity among blacks, blasted the report. Uh, and its scholarly author. Feminists were also enraged. Women could choose for themselves how they wanted to raise their children, thank you very much. 
Blasted as a racist and a sexist, Moynihan retreated back into academic life. To be honest, he was not especially welcome there either, but even his enemies recognized his brilliance and erudition. So this is 1965. Somebody has noticed that there is something happening uh, in the uh, black community that doesn't quite make sense when it comes to family structure. Uh, but uh, that didn't um, stick because the topic of the black family disappeared entirely from the public conversation. Uh, it was clear to, to uh, Professor Moynihan and to anybody else who was observing that uh, this was a very dangerous idea indeed. Uh, for over 20 years, in fact, no one dared to speak of it. And what I, the, the slide I'm going to show you now will give you an idea of what happened. If you'll look with me at the top line, uh, you will see that uh, in 1965, when uh, Professor Moynihan was first writing, uh, there were about 24% of, of children, black children, were born to single mothers. Uh, as everybody... Um, put their heads in the sand, look at what happened to the numbers. And today, 72%, over 72%, almost 73% of black children are born to single mothers. You can see that, um, that is, this is no longer a black issue. Um, you, the numbers for Hispanics only start around 1990 because before 1990, we had a much, much smaller Hispanic population, mostly Puerto Ricans, and then after uh, the 80s or so, we start to see a big uh, uh, growth. In fact, Hispanics now um, are a larger proportion of our population than blacks, about 18%. So you can see now 50, over 50% 50 of Hispanic children are born to single mothers and about 29% of whites. And you can see when Moynihan was first writing how, just how low that number was. It was probably under 5%, now 29%. So clearly, uh, this has become um, uh, an issue for all races, all groups, um, but uh, the problem was that as this was becoming a tremendous problem in the black community in particular, Nobody wanted to talk about it. Uh, meanwhile, the divorce rates were also soaring, especially during the 1970s. I'm not going to bore you with uh, more numbers on that uh, because we need to jump ahead. But the main point that I want you to be aware of is that by this time, uh, and probably for the last 10 years or so, uh, uh, about half of American children will spend part of their childhood in a single-parent home. That's half. Now, um, so you have that history where uh, somebody tried to talk about this, they were cut off at the knees, and nobody, nobody said a word. But in the early 1990s, a young sociology student named Sarah McClanahan, who had learned about what, were, what her professors assured her were the untrue claims of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, decided it was time that someone looked at the numbers and put the topic to rest. By this point, she had an awful lot of material. There was a large amount of information that had been collected in the uh, past 30 years since the divorce rate and non-marital birth rate had begun to rise, and it was now possible to look at the grown children of single parents, of single, mostly single mothers, uh, and see how they were doing. She also, by the way, had a vested interest in the topic. She was a divorced mother of two, and she needed a, a thesis idea. So she set to work analyzing this enormous amount of information. And believe me, she was very um, set on the idea that she would find every, the kids were all right. But here is what she found. So in 1995, uh, she, that's 30 years after the Moynihan Report first uh, uh, warned of this coming revolution, um, although even uh, Professor Moynihan had no idea how bad it would get, uh, Sarah McClanahan and a co-author uh, wrote Growing Up with a Single Parent um, and implied that I did write that, but I didn't. <laughs> I, I wish I had. At any rate, um, she looked at all of these numbers, and I want to emphasize here, this is, um, this is social science research. This is not opinion making. This is going through huge amounts of data that show uh, the outcomes for various children uh, from various homes. 
Children who grow up in a household with only one biological parent are worse off on average than children who grow up with both biological parents, regardless of their parents' race, educational back or, uh, or educational background. Uh, and they went on. Adolescents who lived apart from one of their parents during childhood are twice as likely to drop out of high school, two times as likely to have a child before 20, and one, this is, uh, by the way, no longer true, and I can talk about that if you'd like, one and a half times as likely to be idle, out of school and out of work, in their late teens or 20s. So again, we have long-term analysis of what's happening to these kids. Uh, and then one final point they make, parental affection and warmth is likely to be below average since the mother must fill two roles instead of one and is likely to be under considerable stress. Okay. Now, um, the, uh, let's look at, okay. So, in case you're thinking, okay, so this one woman did this research and so what? She found this, you know, it can't, it can't uh, tell us that much. In fact, Moynihan, uh, uh, Sarah McClanahan was only the first of many to find these trends. Uh, this is a, a Mavis Hetherington, uh, well known as a kind of, I don't know exactly how to, to describe it, not pro-divorce, but somebody who was not particularly alarmed about what was going on. Still, she found children of divorce are more than so, twice as likely to have serious social, emotional, or psychological problems as children of intact families. Now notice, we're, still, we're only talking about 25% only versus 10%, but 25% doesn't, means that a lot of kids are doing okay. So we want to posit that. Uh, nevertheless, 25%, a risk of 20, uh, uh, that 25% will have these adverse outcomes is probably similar to the risk of smokers uh, getting cancer. So it's quite dangerous and disturbing. Okay, uh, and uh, we have here um, Paul Amato, another uh, well-known professor, um, who, family researcher, who had for a long time said, oh no, it's, everything's okay. He, uh, by 2000, and actually well before, was uh, saying adult children of divorce are more likely to experience deep depression in their own divorces, as well as earn less education, etc. So the evidence was piling in uh, uh, and um, showing over and over again that there were problems. Um, so we have now lots of people joining Team Moynihan and McClanahan. There were plenty of questions and there remain plenty of questions about why this is happening and what it means. For, is it, for instance, was it something about a missing parent per se or about divorce and having a baby outside of marriage that sets those families apart? Was it something about the parents themselves? Um, these were the kinds of questions we actually still cannot completely answer, although we can speculate. Now, one question you might ask um, in, when you're trying to figure out why this is, is you say, well, okay, but what happens when a parent dies um, if, it's just, uh, if it's just missing a parent? Well, it turns out that children who end up in a single parent family as a result of the death of one parent do not have the same poor outcomes as children raised by single mothers due to divorce or out of wedlock birth. So that, that is a finding, this is from Isabel Sawhill, who by the way uh, is at the Brookings Institute, well-known center-left uh, think tank in, uh, in, the, in uh, Washington. Um, what about uh, parents who live together but don't marry? What about cohabiting parents? Now here is where we get to something that may be more typical of the United States than other countries, but I do want to present it to you and explain what's going on there so that you can be alert to what the uh, dangers are. Um, in terms of material well-being, cohabiting, children of cohabiting parents look uh, not so different than children of married parents. However, they are much worse off than children living with two married parents or adoptive parents on other uh, well-being measures. They're similar to children living with single mothers, more likely to be uh, read to infrequently and exhibit behavioral problems than children living with married parents. Again, I, the authors of this report uh, are at the Urban Institute, again, a left-of-center 
think tank in the United States, in, uh, in Washington. Um, why, uh, why would that be? Um, oh, here's another, uh, here's another uh, outcome from uh, the research on cohabiting parents for older children. Uh, the share exhibiting behavioral problems is much higher among those living in cohabiting families. So similar kinds of problems to children living with single mothers. Um, one of the reasons we think that we see, somewhat, uh, see similar kinds of problems for cohabiting, children of cohabiting parents in the United States is the, uh, it can be found in this chart. Because what it shows is that there is much more instability among cohabiting parents. Uh, children who are born to cohabiting parents are three times as likely to see their parents break up by the time they're five than children who are, are born to a married couple. Now, again, this uh, could be more specific to the United States. Um, uh, I haven't, uh, you know, uh, there, there's some indication that in other developed countries things are a little more stable for cohabitors, although uh, the research still suggests that children are slightly better off uh, with married, cu married couples. Um, it seems as if uh, our in the US at any rate, cohabitors are much less committed and stable. To me, this makes sense. It may not make sense to all of you, but that when you, are, when you marry, you're making a conscious decision to a long-term relationship. It may not work out, it often doesn't work out, but the decision, the mindfulness about what you're doing is there. Uh, in the United States, almost all educated women marry before they have children. We have a tremendous gap between educated and non-educated women, which I'll show you in a minute. Now, there are huge social implications from all of this. Um, uh, I think we missed one here. Um, yeah, well, this actually just explains what I showed you, that there, by the, or another example of the instability that comes with cohabitation, Two-thirds of unmarried mothers have experienced at least one partnership change. Over a third have experienced at least two changes. But that's by the time the child is three years old. Those kinds of uh, transitions, as it's uh, euphemistically called uh, by researchers, um, seem to be very problematic for children, especially, uh, if you were at my talk earlier today, especially for boys. Um, uh, and there are more emotional problems for those children who, uh, as well. Um, what have we got here? Uh, okay, so the implications, as I say, are really profound for American society, and I suspect that you will be seeing this more here over time. It leads to more poverty and more inequality. Because what happens is, as if a low-income mother uh, in addition to having low income uh, and um, having less, in inevitably less education, uh, raises a child alone, she also has the burden of single motherhood, of not having a, the help of a partner, uh, and of not having the second income. And what, the children of single mothers in the United States and elsewhere, from what I've seen, do not do as well in school. So, uh, as, as the children of uh, uh, stably married parents. That means that those children will are much more likely to stay poor. And so we have a big gap between the educated and uneducated population. So is this just in the United States? Not really. Across all in, uh, Western industrialized countries, Children in single mother families have much higher poverty rates than children in two-parent families. And uh, this is from a um, study from a Swedish uh, researcher. Remember that in Sweden, they have all of the kinds of supports that should make a lot of these problems uh, go away, but they don't. We find that the associations between family structure and children's outcomes to be remarkably similar in the United States and Sweden, even though the policy and social environments differ between the two countries. All right? Um, just one more thing to remind you that this uh, is very much of a gap between 
college graduates who are very, very unlikely to have children outside of marriage. You can see that those who graduate high school or have a little bit of college, far more likely to have children outside of marriage. This is in the 20s, but it looks very, in there uh, between age 20 and 29, but it looks very similar, older as well. And then those with less than high school, uh, you can see it's well over 50%, well over half. Now, um, uh, my final slide makes a crucial point. We tend to think of the decision of whether to have a child and, uh, when you're married or not married as a very personal decision. It's just my decision, my friend's decision, my sister's decision, and nobody else's business. But in the United States, what's happened is that there are entire communities, mostly poor communities, where children are growing up and will never know a married couple. I know you're thinking I'm exaggerating. I'm not. This is very true in inner-city uh, New York, where I'm from, uh, in, in inner-city uh, uh, communities, uh, for many, many black and increasingly Hispanic children, intact families are something you might see on television, but never next door or down the block. A mother and father living together with their children, it simply does not exist in those communities. And those communities are in crisis. They have more, uh, more crime, less education and opportunity, and that is everybody's business. Thank you very much. I copped a lot of flack back in the 1970s as one of the first people to speak out about sex in Australia. At the time, it was distinctly unfashionable and not done to talk about penises or orgasms in public company, in polite company. But that doesn't compare to the bombardment I receive whenever I write about the issue of how children fare in different types of families. When Julia Gillard was moving into the lodge with her partner, Tim Matheson, I raised the questions about this pioneering de facto first family and talked about why we might be wary about the, the, the um, influence of this prominent role model on, uh, and her, pri public, her private behaviour. And of course, it's no big deal for Gillard. I mean, she was a 48-year-old woman um, living with a man. That wasn't the issue. I've lived in de facto relationships for many years of my life. Uh, but what I was talking about was the fact that there, are there were two major issues that concerned me there, <coughs> particularly for, for instance, for single women who want to get married and have children, there's a real issue of living in a de facto relationship with uncertain expectations, where you haven't actually talked through where this relationship is heading, because you can waste a lot of critical time um, in that relationship without knowing where it's going. Those of you who were in Kay's session earlier would have heard a perfect example of that, a young woman who talked about ending up at 30 with this man she'd been with for five years and not really um, ever managed to pin him down about where he wanted the relationship to go. And the other thing I talked about was the issue of um, children growing up in single parent families and the whole issue of family type. Never in 40 years of journalism have I attracted so much venom. Put your head in the oven, you old bag, one, was one of the comments I received. <laughs> Catherine Devaney, I'm sure you know, in her usual measured style, referred to me as an uptight white honky. <laughs> <clears throat> now, as, as Kay's explained, I mean, in the 40 years I've been writing about this, there's been this accumulation of evidence about the importance of this issue and the fact that in America, at least, this issue is starting to turn itself around. And that's just not happening in Australia. We are absolutely determined to hit, stick our head in the sand. And there was a beautiful example of this recently. I'm sure many of you know the wonderful family drama, Australian drama, Offspring, on Channel 10. And recently, one of the actors in that drama spoke out about how this, is, this show is celebrating the dysfunctional family, as it, de it is. Um, you'll, those who watch it regularly will know Billy, a wonderful character. She's got a new boyfriend, Lawrence. And she says she's got quite strong feelings for Lawrence. Maybe, uh, Lawrence has raised the idea of having a, having a baby together. 
And she said, maybe I don't need to love him. Plenty of mismatched people have kids together. People who hate each other have kids together. And the kids survive most of the time. And if things don't work out romantically, he'd be a first-class co-parent. That pretty much sums up to me the new relaxed approach to parenting that's developing in Australia, and particularly in our lower socioeconomic communities. The casualisation of families involving children is one of the major issues contributing to disadvantages in this country, and it's never talked about. And when we do debate this topic, people always chime in and say, well, these are poor divorced women who've been deserted by their husbands. And that's not the real issue anymore in Australia. Most kids who end up in single-parent families do throw, not through divorce, but being born to single mums or in unstable de facto families. It's women who are making decisions to have children in these situations that's leading to this problem and leading to more and more children being brought up in poverty. Now, those of you who are old enough to remember, <coughs> might remember back in the 80s, Bob Hawke made this election promise. He said, no child will be brought up in poverty by 1990. Poor old Bob, his promise got totally derailed because that was the decade which saw a 70% increase, increase in the ex-nuptial birth rate. And it meant ever since then, there's been just no hope of reducing poverty in Australian families. And the expenditure on supporting single parent families has gone up ever since. As Kay points out, um, we are talking about a big divide here between what's happening in well-educated communities where women are continuing to, most women are getting married a lot later, but they're marrying before they have children in the main. Whereas in lower socioeconomic communities, a lot of people have absolutely given up on marriage and women are having children on their own or in de facto relationships. And the research shows exactly the same sort of patterns that Kay was talking about. Divorce qualified women in Australia are now the group most likely to be married. Sorry, degree qualified women are most likely to be married in all age groups from 30 to 44. So all the well-educated women are still tending to, um, to be married. And it, at the lower socioeconomic communities, you're seeing a very different pattern developing. And they're... they're women are much less likely to marry and are having more children and are having them earlier. And they're much more likely to end up as single parents. The argument that comes out here is always that, well, we need to give them more money. That would solve the problem. Academics are always talking about this issue and saying that the negative consequences are all due to poverty. Now, we can talk... Kay mentioned a little bit about that. that, it's not, that the evidence is very clear that that's not the case. It's also due to the fact that two parents are better than one. It's really tough being a single mother on your own and having to do everything. And I was a single mum back in the early 80s. I was widowed. I had all the resources in the world. I had a good job. I had lots of money, comparatively. And I was... It was still a really tough road. I remember once talking to a woman who was a representative from the uh, Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, which is one of the major lobby groups for single mums, and she said the same thing to me. She'd had a really hard time. She said, we should be going out there and telling women that this is hard, that they should think about whether they really want to do this. Um, I quoted her in an article. The next day, she was writing to the newspaper saying she'd never said that. There's a lot of pressure on anyone who speaks about, up about this issue to shut up. Um, the, so the issue, I, 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 one of the critical factors here is that fathers do make a difference. Um, it's interesting to me looking at the, the, the two messages that are coming out here. On the one hand, we're saying to men, get involved. You have to be active parents. You have to be there at the birth. You have to push the prams. You know, that, that fathers are really important to children. And then on the other hand, we're saying, oh, well, mothers could do a perfectly good job on their own. I mean, how are you supposed to put those two themes together? As Kay said, even when lone parents remarry, the evidence is that the kids don't necessarily eliminate the sort of problems we've been discussing. Um, children in, in step families in Australia are at risk of a range of adverse outcomes. Um, 
the similar range as children in single parent homes. We have a major researcher in this area, as an ANU professor called Brian Rogers. His book had reviewed 400 studies, many in Australia uh, as well as overseas, and they show these worse outcomes for kids in, in step families. Step families are a really interesting issue. Having, after I ended up as a step in step family situation after being widowed. I mean, the complications of bringing together a blended family are enormous. There's a good reason why second marriages involving children are much less stable, because it's really tough. One of the major reasons kids are homeless in Australia is leaving home as a result of conflict in a step family, of mum's boyfriend, a new man, a new husband, and they don't get on with them. Um, now, the problem is we have a whole society now where lots of people were raised by single mums. And they, mom, single mums who did a wonderful job and they really resent the idea that there, there can be anything wrong with this idea, that, that their mothers didn't do a good job or mothers like them didn't do a good job or there's something wrong with them. And of course, there are lots of well-educated de facto couples with lasting relationships and thriving children. But the broader... Uh, patterns tell a very different story. It's like the 90-year-old who smokes a pack a day. I mean, that's got no, no bearing on the link between cigarettes and health issues. Uh, and yet, that's just, you always get these personal examples raised. My mum did a terrific job. What's wrong? What are you talking about? The Australian show, research shows very clearly the same gap that Kay was talking about in terms of married parents tending to make a difference. And it's the most fascinating thing. We have our major research institute in Australia is the Australian Institute of Family Studies. And they did a really important study looking at this area and found young families with cohabiting parents are three times more likely to break up within the first four years as those with married parents. And the same research has shown that in the cohabiting families, children lag, lag behind children with um, married parents in overall socioeconomic and general development show poorer learning, more conduct problems and experience poorer parenting. And I think it's really fascinating, this whole question of why it makes a difference, this piece of paper. And as Kay explained, it's to do, I think, with that decision-making process that a lot of people, you know, most people when they marry at least think about do I want to be with this person for a long time? They have a discussion about long-term expectations, whether they have a mutual expectations. Is this the man I want to, be, to have children with? Whereas lots of people slide into cohabiting relationships. You know, you get sick of going home from fresh underwear, your, someone's lease runs out, you end up living together <laughs> and you may never have had the sort of discussion about whether you're on the same page. I, years ago, I did some research on this talk talking to women in, who'd been in, in de facto relationships. And many of them said, oh, I didn't dare ask him when we got together about whether he was serious, whether he wanted to get married, have kids, whatever. Um, so it's a, that, that's what seems to provide the glue, the, the issue in terms of the decision-making. And that gives the marriages more sticking power. And as Kay say, says, it's stability that is the key issue here. And anything that puts children in a situation where the, the family relationship is not likely to be stable means that the children are more likely to end up in trouble. Now, interestingly, this research study I mentioned from Institute of Family Studies, I mean, it's been published, but they didn't actually make a big deal about it. They've never had a conference about family structure and outcomes for kids. Um, it, I mean, it's just fascinating how the researchers deal with this. There was a um, study, a really important study in Western Australia on mental health of children. Longitudinal study following children for 10 years. They kept publishing all these different results as they came out. And then they find, reached their crucial findings where, of course, family structure turned out to be one of the major things that determined whether children have mental health problems. And the main researcher told me that when I rang up to, to, to ask about this finding, he shuddered because they were desperately hoping it would fall underneath the media radar. They didn't want to talk about it. Um, back in the 1970s, Margaret Whitlam, 
Gough Whitlam's wife. Whitlam uh, was in, in, they were in power, the Whitlams, and, and he'd just been elected prime minister. She had a television show. Jermaine, and she was interviewing Jermaine Greer, and Jermaine Greer had announced she was thinking of having a child on her own. And Margaret Whitlam, who was always wonderfully outspoken, said, oh, I think that's a selfish idea. Uh, it may be all right for people who are well-known and have position, but it's not okay for everybody, she said. And that's what makes this issue so tricky. It is so much easier for affluent people to cushion the effects of a divorce on children, um, to make up in various ways for father absence with nannies, with after-school care. They've got the resources to make it that much less likely that the children are going to have problems. Although the adverse effects of a family breakup apply in affluent homes just as much as, as the lower socioeconomic um, situations because it's all about, as I said, instability, changes, new schools, moving, losing contact with grandma, not having contact with your... All the stuff that happens after people separate. But we have many people in Australia who are influential people who are determined to give the impression it's fine for everybody to have kids on their own, including the poor women who cannot begin to support children on their own. Richard Glover, I'm sure many of you know him, really popular ABC presenter, writes for the Sydney Morning Herald, often boasts about the fact he's in a de facto relationship that has raised two children, 32 years they've been together. And when I've written about cohabiting families, he had a go at me. He said, do my children miss out on anything? Well, yes, Bettina, they miss out on vases, which I thought was really funny. He was joking about the fact his fa he never had any wedding presents in his house. So no elegant Danish vases, you know. <coughs> I mean, very funny, but of course, the issue is when someone like that talks about the fact, that, no big deal, it's all wonderful, it has an impact. And the really fascinating thing is his wife is Deborah Oswald, who's the main writer for Offspring, which is constantly making fun of marriage. And one of the big themes in Offspring is you don't need the piece of paper. The risks are small. We're not talking about all kids being affected and only a proportion of children in these situations will suffer the problems we've been discussing. But it's a really big issue for society when huge numbers make poor decisions. There's a, a family law judge in, um, in the UK called Paul Coleridge. He's He's made a name, reputation, because he's willing to speak out about these issues. And he recently spoke out about watching more and more kids being in de facto relationships going through the divorce courts. Um, and his point about all of this is he said, is what is a matter of pr private concern when it's on a small scale becomes a matter of public concern when it reaches epidemic proportions. And that's where we're heading in Australia. Now, the gay marriage issue, which we know will come up, um, you know, for all the talk about gay marriage, these are the marriage patterns that are really affecting people in Australia. Not gay marriage, we're talking gay people. In, the biggest survey in Australia on sexual behaviour found two to three percent of people acknowledge being homosexual in this country. And how, what proportion of them would actually be in a stable relationship? This is minuscule compared to the numbers of children being affected by the trends we're talking about today. Uh, and it just amazes me that so many people champion the right of gay people to get married when they sneer at this piece of paper and say marriage doesn't matter at all. I mean, what are we talking about here? And how is it they don't care about the rights of one in three Australian children being born to single mothers and being raised in poverty? Um, if, if we're concerned about anything, that's what we should be talking about. Look at the issue of institutional sexual abuse. Whenever we talk about sexual abuse at the moment, it's always about uh, the Royal Commission and about, you know, lots of pot shots at the Catholic Church, of course. And we never talk about one of the most important areas of sexual abuse for children, which is mum's boyfriend, which is strangers passing through the lives of single mums. Uh, recent study, uh, research report by the Centre for Independent Studies reviewed over 70 research projects and found that the, the children are sexually abused by stepfathers, by partners of their single mothers, they're, they're abused at 20 times the rate as biological fathers. 
Most sexual abuse takes place in families, not in institutions. You have a very slim chance as a child in Australia of being felt up by a horny priest. I'm not saying that's not important, but it's just a really minor risk compared to the chances of being interfered with by and abused by someone passing through the life of a vulnerable single family. Now, my new job, wonderful new job, is um, an online dating coach. I'm helping people all over Australia with online dating, writing their profiles, helping them who are people who are nervous of online dating and get, get, get going and be, achieve their success. Uh, well, some of my male clients really amaze me because they tell me about meeting mums, meeting single mums, you know, this is men in their 40s and 50s particularly, a couple of dates and she'll invite them for a sleepover at her home and there'll be a five-year-old sleeping there, there'll be a 15-year-old girl and here's this total stranger being invited in to sleep there, being invited sometimes to move in with her. I mean, this is a really important issue. And one of the fascinating things about all of this, I've done a lot of work over the years about on divorce and particularly about the, what's happened to fathers after divorce and talk to so many fathers who tell me what it's like to be the biological father of these children and to know there are men living in your child's family who might be putting your children at risk. And these guys go along to docs and try to report the fact that they're concerned, they feel their kids are at risk, and they get be dismissed as sort of jealous ratbags. Uh, I mean, it's a really fascinating situation. We see a constant parade of celebrities in the sort of situations we, I'm describing. Pregnant single women, single mums, you know, footballers with their de facto partner and their kids and so on. No one ever says to them and talks to them about their family situation. It's just not done. Remember when um, Pat Rafter was um, named Australian of the Year a few years ago and then they suddenly discovered he had a pregnant girlfriend? And I watched this with great interest because no one asked him about his family situation. It was just celebrating. How wonderful your girlfriend is pregnant. This is true. And he went finally, after days and days, he went on a talkback radio program and a little girl asked him, are you going to get married? And no one else had dared raise this question. <laughs> and I talked to the producer of the show and I said, why didn't the interviewer mention this? And he said, oh, we're over asking that type of question. Everyone can live their own lives these days. And that would be fine, wouldn't it, if these lifestyle decisions weren't impacting adversely on children. I'm not suggesting rafters. Kids are probably are going to have a hard time. I think he's actually got married by now anyway. But that role models have a real influence. Why are we so concerned about footballers doing disgusting things off-field, you know? Um, if we're not... If we we say, say, look, this is a really bad thing for young men to watch their, their heroes behave so badly. Now, why is this different? Uh, that we don't care about celebrities and well-known people and their choices they're making around their families. Uh, at that time when Rafter was, was Australian of the Year, there was a lot of talk at the time about deadbeat dads and men getting out of child support. How are we going to convince young men that a casual approach to parenting is not in their future children's interests when we're celebrating this sporting hero's unmarried paternity? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And it's always fascinated me that the child support agency always shows that fathers who've been in de facto relationships are much less likely to pay child support. Last year, I was writing about this and I interviewed this wonderful woman, Newcastle woman, who had a really tough early upbringing. Uh, and by the time she was 20, she was pregnant. She had three or four kids out of a de facto relationship. It was a horrible relationship with a violent man. And she was amazing. She pulled herself up, she got educated, she got a degree, she now works in social welfare with precise, precise sort of families I've been talking about. And she said to me, how is it possible that we never talk to people in these sort of communities? We never do any education about the choices they're making about where they have children. And it's a fascinating thing to me that in developed, developed countries like Australia, we're happy to go out and preach in developing countries and tell women that they need to plan their families, that they need to make sure that they're in a position to look after their children before they have them. They need to get educated first. This is a feminist issue. 
Uh, we're talking about the, the possibility that women derail their life chances and the chances of their children. If they have children they can't afford. So how is it that this issue is totally ignored in Australia when it comes to the well-being and future of Australian women and their children? Thank you. Thank you to Kay and to Bettina. We now have some time for some questions and discussion from you. Oh, running up to the microphone, we love to see this. <laughs> and there's also a microphone upstairs. Um, I might just start quickly by asking Kay and Bettina, when, when we're talking about marriage, um, we're really talking about marriage as a stand-in for a certain set of characteristics, stability and the presence of both parents. Um, you know, that it's a long-term relationship that has gone through that thinking and decision-making process, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, I think one of the interesting issues about this is that, well, what we're reconciling... I mean, I think a lot of people would remember back to, um, you know, pre-60s social revolution, the stigma of, attached to not being married, the moral, mm -hmm. you know, uh, opprobrium attached yeah. to that state. Um, whereas what we're talking about is something quite different in that respect. Well, you know, I think uh, historically a lot of times morality was based on these assumptions. Um, it's just that you didn't want to have to explain it all, so you just said, it's wrong. <laughs> now we want more of an explanation. We're a more rational and uh, uh, thoughtful people, I suppose, thoughtful in some ways. But at any rate, people um, don't want to just hear right, wrong. They yeah. want to hear right. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, it was a dreadful thing. I mean, yeah. if you think back to the 1950s even, you know, the, it, the, the, the woman who had a child on her own was immoral, her child was a bastard. I mean, no-one is suggesting we, we talk in, in those sort of terms. No-one yeah. is suggesting that it's anything but a wonderful thing that we've, we have a society now which accepts people and which doesn't condemn people and make judgments in terms of moral terms. But we need to also look at this decision-making process I'm talking about. Mm. I mean, for instance, is, should, it, should we ask a question as to whether it's a, the right thing, a good thing, for a woman to have a child when she can't afford to raise that child? And the only way she can live is on a sole parent pension, which we are providing. Is that an unreasonable thing to talk about? I think the interesting thing about that is that I don't think you would find many people sitting down and saying, gosh, my aim in life is to be a single <laughs> right. parent on a right. sole parent pension. Correct. That yeah. it's no, really not that kind of no, conscious decision. of course it's not, but, but the issue is whether women would have children. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. we reduce, we pull away welfare support. Obviously, the children no. are the ones who suffer there. But there is this issue that it's... See, and I'll give you an example. I used to be a Clio advisor. I used to answer personal problems on Clio. This is back in the 80s. And I used to have pregnant women write in, say, what do I do? And I would say... And in those days, I was quite comfortable saying, well, you should think about this and this and this and think about whether you can afford to raise a child. And then my editor at a certain point said to me, you can't say that anymore. The sole parent pension was in. It was no longer an acceptable thing to say... Can you provide for this child? Now, what is that? Mm. Questions? First of all, you notice the majority of questions behind me are men. What does it tell you, ladies? <laughs> it tells know. us this is actually common to most sessions. Really? <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> so it's not related to this topic in particular. <laughs> all right, I stand corrected. Um, what, what is the age of that's important for the children and that the male, the partner, the father leaves? Is there an age where it doesn't matter anymore? Um, most of the research I've looked at suggests that it's all through the minor years, that is through till 18 or 20, it matters. Now, there is a little bit of uh, work being done now on adult children of divorce. That is, uh, what happens if you're 22, in the United States, maybe you've just graduated from college or you're in college and your parents split up. Um, I'm not really sure what the long-term findings are, so I can't really answer that. And mm. the reverse, what happens if the mother leaves? At what age does that matter? It matters all through. 
It matters all along. You know, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen any breakdown that says, oh, you're safe by 16. I've never <laughs> seen anything like that. Mm, can, I, can I just say something on that? There's this phenomenon called the HSC divorce. I mean, lots of, <laughs> yeah. lots of women and quite, I mean, I think good on them. I mean, we see more and more people make, who are in unhappy marriages, not high conflict marriage, but marriages where they're not happy, who make the decision to stay until yeah. their children are grown up. Right. So after the HSC, <laughs> the last child does the HSC and they're out the door. Right. But that's a log- to be a logical and a considered decision yeah. to make. Yeah. 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 Over here. Uh, hello, my name is Simon. I'm a child of divorce. Um, <laughs> Welcome, you Simon. You. Thank, you. <laughs> um, thank you both for your topics of discussion. There's so much to talk about, really. Um, Bettina, you ended your talk with some sort of uh, touching base on what we could be doing in order to help the situation. And Kay, your information was uh, in-depth and, and very, um, very structured. And yeah, very, it was, there was a lot going on. I was just wondering, you didn't end by talking about if there's a step towards a solution, how we can help people. And I mean, really, there were so many questions I wanted to ask, the, the relevance of marriage, if it's just a, purely a religious ceremony. And, but really, I just wanted to know whether or not you thought there was any movement towards making steps in the right direction to be saving the next generation of sort of um, uh, children brought up in single families. And you mentioned the how it affects the black community. I was wondering whether or not you being a white American woman compromises your ability to actually understand and get in touch with black America. Well, of course, it's very difficult to have these discussions uh, cross-racially in in the United States. And I uh, have done it several times, but I I wouldn't say to to great satisfaction on my part. Uh, There's a little bit of... um, you know, people are uneasy uh, when it's an outsider speaking about your your group. But, you know, at this point, uh, as I hope you saw in the numbers, this is no longer a black issue. This is is a white and Hispanic and black issue. It is particularly devastating for the black community, and I think it's impeded black progress terribly. So, um, and and there are black conservatives who who know this and and are talking about it, but it's it's somewhat rare, to be honest. It's a very... Mm -hmm very difficult topic racially. Um, on the question of the um, what to do, you know, in the United States, I would say that the family research community, and it's fairly large, sociologists, economists have been studying this stuff for decades now, and they all would agree pretty much with what I, you know, with, with everything I've said, but what they will not agree on is what's causing it, and what to do about it. So there are a lot of of, uh, people in the field who say, well, we just need to provide more supports for single mothers. Uh, And then there are others like myself who say, I don't think that that's what the research shows. It's not just a money problem. But um, the question is what to do when you cannot get a consensus in, in the society as a whole about these issues. In other words, we can say, we know that this is happening, but we still, in America, can't quite get to the point of saying in an unambiguous way, and Bettina's been talking about this, you shouldn't have a child until you are in a long-term committed relationship that we generally call marriage. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm open to the idea that we could call it something else, call it what you want, but that's, you know, that's what we need to have. People don't want to even make that statement. Okay, so you've got a whole bunch of sex addicts out there that just want to have sex without the consequence of procreating and... Uh... Oh, that is a whole other <laughs> yeah, topic. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Can we move on anyway, to the question sorry, here? Yeah. Thank you. You've both talked a lot about the consequences Can you just of, um, come a little bit closer to the mic? Closer? You've both talked a lot about the consequences of um, children growing up in single-parent families. I was wondering what decisions you think people should be making in their own lives when they're confronted with issues like unplanned pregnancy and with um, serious marital or relationship issues like abuse? Oh. You wanna, well, I'll just say very briefly. If you're in an abusive relationship, get out. You know, there is absolutely no ambiguity about that. But there's a tendency, I think, and I've noticed in, in the States as well, uh, there's a tendency to assume 
that that's the major problem that breaks up marriages. It's actually a very small percentage of marriages that break up because of, of um, high conflict or abuse. Uh, it's mostly low conflict, so do keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, Kay mentioned Paula Marto, who was one of the researchers she quoted. He did research in Australia as well as overseas on this whole issue of conflict. And the, I mean, the really sad thing is a lot of children actually experience more conflict when the marriage breaks up. Mm. The children are more likely to witness violence between their parents after they separate than before. Now, isn't that a shocking thing? And it's because of the horrible way we treat divorce and the fact that, you know, you get lawyers involved and, and kids get caught in the middle and parents who once kept the, the arguments behind the bedroom door now fight in front of the children. Uh, the consequence of divorce in terms of the, of the children's emotional welfare are just profound. Mm. Um, what was the other point you raised? Unplanned pregnancy. Oh, I want to tell you a story about unplanned pregnancy. Um, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think... This was, of course, the issue, as I said, I was confronting with the Clio thing, and I've often been very interested in how we talk about that now. There was what you know, Home and Away, the... Because um, <laughs> I'm a great believer, soap operas tell you, not only reflect society, mm -hmm. but they influence society, yeah. which is why they really bother me. Um, <laughs> because it matters. I, and I was talking to a, a, a writer for Home and Away back in the 1980s, and she said to me that... You know, they had this constant problem with unplanned pregnancy because they, did, they weren't allowed to talk about abortion on, you know, a show that was on at 7 o'clock at night or whatever it was. And so they'd have lots of people, women, you know, picking up heavy suitcases or falling downstairs, pregnant women. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it became acceptable to have the heroic young woman who decides to become a single mother. And everybody who got in the situation of being unplanned, you know, having a pregnancy, became a single mother and she was, you know, it was, this was celebrated. Fascinating shift that occurred there. Mm. I think abortion has to be part of the issue and of course it is. Most, yeah. most women in Australia are lucky enough to have access to safe abortion and, and we have, a, you know, we have a sadly very high abortion rate which I think we need to talk about. We don't, well, I don't think we should assume that that's reasonable to have the levels of abortion we do. Uh, and yet, thank God, we have that option. Mm. Up here. Hi, thanks very much. It was a really stimulating discussion so far. Um, my, my question is, there seems to be a lot of focus on divorce as a root cause of poor outcomes for children. But isn't it possible that there are common issues that are driving both divorce yeah. and the poor outcomes yeah, for yeah. children? Right. You're raising a methodological problem that researchers really can't finally answer? In other words, are you looking at a child who's come out of a, 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 a very conflicted, difficult relationship, or are you looking at the divorce, okay? And how would that child look if the parents stayed together? And uh, all I can tell you is that ultimately, it's unanswerable. All we can do is try to look at the kids, uh, uh, trace as many of the variables as we can, uh, look at the kids whose parents seem to be in a low-conflict relationship but stayed together uh, as opposed to those who broke up and, and that kind of thing. But uh, you are getting at a real problem in the research, and I admit it. But, um, you know, over the years, we've been able to filter out enough of the variables, enough of the, of the control for enough of the differences between people to come to some conclusion on this. You can have good divorces. You can have parents who really yeah. understand how important it is to do this well, yeah. to put their children first, to share parenting after divorce. And they will, there's no question they minimise the adverse out outcomes for kids in that situation. Yeah. And it's just really infuriating how little, how often it goes the other way and how much our whole system drives parents to fight with each other, to have the children in the middle and so on. I mean, yeah. It's one of the issues that I'm very passionate about. It, it does strike me that potentially um, looking at the, something like EQ of, of the parents involved in getting to this issue about managing the complexity of the relationships and the dynamics might, might be something that might drive both. But, right. mm -hmm. but we also need a family court system that doesn't systematically drive fathers out. I wrote recently about the fact that we've had a ruling in Australia, a virtual ruling, where 
fathers, even if they had a lot of involvement with their infant children or their toddler children, there's been a basic ruling that kids aren't allowed to have overnight contact with their fathers until the child is three. Mm -hmm. And it was all based on some totally dubious psychology research that has become become enshrined in law in in Australia. I mean, the family law system is full of problems as far as I'm concerned. Fortunately, we don't have time to go into family law any (laughs) further. (laughs) And I'm very sorry, but we're going to have to close it there. We've run out of time. Before we thank Kay and Bettina, can I encourage you to tune into Q&A tomorrow night to to see more of Kay? Um, Come join us throughout the rest of the afternoon for other sessions in the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Um, And um, have a look online in the next uh, little while for the uh, the, the rest of the talks, anything that you've missed as they go up. And if you want information about my dating coaching, you can come and talk to me afterwards. Well... (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.